This is Reimagining Higher Education, your go-to podcast with remarkable education leaders sharing personal stories from their experience in and around the sector, including reflection and evidence for progress in the sector. With your host, Sir Eric Thomas, former Vice-Chancellor at the University of Bristol, President of Universities UK and Chair of the Worldwide University Network, and now Studiosity Advisory Board Member. Welcome. Well, everybody, welcome very much to this uh, podcast uh, under the series uh, Reimagining Higher Education by Studiosity. My name's Eric Thomas, and we have a series of podcasts. We're uh, touching on a number of what I think are critical issues in higher education, uh, some unusual and some unusual ways of looking at it. But we thought we'd start off with the non-controversial topic of university rankings. And um, we, uh, it's a delight to uh, uh, welcome my colleague and my friend. We are Arsenal season ticket holders mm-hmm. together and often go to the matches John O'Leary, uh, who was previously editor of the Times Higher, uh, but also, of course, uh, was responsible for the rankings in the Times and the Sunday Times and the University Guide. And so I'd like to explore with him some of the issues around rankings uh, and um, uh, as well as some more personal issues possibly with him, which is we'll start with what what was a brief resume of your career, John? Well, I guess it started if we're taking graduation as the start of it uh, as a sabbatical president of the Students' Union in Sheffield, where I'd done a degree in politics. Uh, And then I went to the Evening Chronicle in Newcastle to start my career, was there for three years or so, and then went to what was then the Times Higher Education Supplement, uh, dropped the supplement some years later, uh, and was there for about 12 years, ended up as deputy editor, and then moved to the Times to be um, first higher education correspondent and then education editor uh, for another 10, 12 years after that, during which uh, we started the rankings. Then I went back to Times Higher as editor in 2002, where we started the international rankings um, and left in 2007 and have been doing various things since, mostly working from home before it was fashionable. Uh, And here we are today. Right, brilliant. So a couple of uh, great ones. You were you were annealed in that great uh, journalist inferno, the Newcastle Evening Chronicle, John, which has been the uh, producer of many a journalist, yeah. correct? Yes, absolutely, yeah. <laughs> um, the, the Chronicle and Journal, which was the uh, the morning right. paper, and the Sunday Sun, which existed at the time. Absolutely. And, and, and also, I think we have to make a, a, a solemn declaration that... Uh, at no stage did I attempt to get you to increase us in the rankings when your daughter was an undergraduate at <laughs> Bristol. <laughs> no, and I'm sure you were perfectly satisfied when we did. <laughs> so how did you find your time at Sheffield? What was it like being an undergraduate in those days? Uh, I loved it. I was the first in my family to go to higher education, as most people were at, at the time. Because the uh, uh, numbers were rising even then, although... It, the time I was at Sheffield, there were about four or five thousand students, as opposed to the sort of 30,000 that uh, you'd find there now. Uh, no, I had the time of my life there. 
And did you, am I, I'm right in thinking that you went back as a trustee of the Students' Union. Uh, I mean, apart from size, what did you find was different? Um, size was the sort of biggest change, but um, the existence of a, a trustee board would have been something we wouldn't have taken kindly to, I think, in, uh, in my day as the Student Union president. Um, whereas actually we tried to be helpful and, and generally and hopefully we ended up being that. Um, and the whole higher education system had, had changed and become a lot more uh, competitive by then. So there were uh, universities are very different places to what they were in the, in the 70s when I was there. Yeah, I bet you. And uh, um, uh, I mean, did, did, of course, the key question, if you were the student union president, did you, did you occupy the vice chancellor's office at any stage? <laughs> no, not the vice chancellor's office. We occupied one or two things briefly. <laughs> um, but it, it would have been rude not to have done in the, in the 70s. I mean, it, it's a very different sector now, a very, very different sector. You've mentioned competition as part of... Uh, what else do you... Do? I mean, I, I feel that um, the, the student feedback and the student input into the educational and, and social and cultural experience is now much higher than it was when you and I were at university. Yes, and I think it depended on the the attitude of the, the students and the administration. I mean, we had quite a good relationship at, at Sheffield and would cooperate on a number of things. I remember the vice chancellor suggesting that I went to go and talk to the, uh, the city council, which was strongly Labour, because they were more likely to think I was sympathetic to their point of view than uh, he was. the university, which is seen as a sort of establishment institution. So. Um, there were links then, but um, certainly it's different now. And universities, I think, have to take more notice of their students now, partly because of rankings. Yes. And also there's such powerful social and economic forces, particularly the provincial universities in the cities in which they are. Ab absolutely they are. Um, and you can see that by the, how keen places that haven't got one um, oh, now are to, to start one. There are all sorts of places trying to start universities or a branch of a university that's already in existence. Um, whereas, you know, when I was there, it was a, a very much a minority pursuit, sort of 40 or 50 universities, twice that number, three times now. Yes, I, for a while I was on the governing body of NMITE, the new university in Hereford, and that would have yeah. been the first, that is the first university in Hereford, and Hereford very clearly saw the the university as as, as a, an integral part of its economic and social and cultural future, as various other things withered on the vine. Yeah, and uh, I think there's a lot of evidence to to show that that's correct as well. Right, right. And if you were looking back to your younger self, then is there any kind of bit of advice that you would kind of give yourself or actually would you say well actually things have gone reasonably well <laughs> well things have gone reasonably well uh, in that I was always intending to become a journalist and uh, uh, that wasn't the normal route then um, like a lot of other um, trades or professions it's the normal route now to be a graduate but it, it wasn't then right um, I suppose I would I should advise myself to, to do more academic work and spend less time on the, 
student newspaper and the students' union, but uh, actually I rather enjoyed that, so I'm not sure I would. I mean, were you regarded with suspicion in the offices of the Newcastle Evening Chronicle because oh. you were a graduate? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, I was the graduate that, that year and a staff of hundreds. It was sort of, uh, yes, you were regarded with, with a certain amount of suspicion. Right, uh, I can imagine that. And I suppose if you were thinking about things, if you were to be able to change one thing for students now, uh, what might that be? I, I mean, I, 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 I feel somehow or other they've had a, quite a depersonalised experience over the last couple of years with COVID, and it's yeah. somehow about personalising. That's my. I just wondered what you thought. Yes, uh, I'm. I'm sure, and they're desperate for that to happen as well. And you can see the dissatisfaction with the unavoidable remote learning that um, people had to go through during the pandemic. Right. Um, I'm, I think I would advise them to spend a little less time worrying about trigger warnings and uh, how upset people might be by other things that we've managed to live through ourselves and perhaps to, to worry a bit more about how universities will be in two or three years time if uh, they don't get a little more funding both for teaching and research and there's not much sign of it at the moment. Yes, I, I, I think the other difference that I've noticed is that, um, you know, my friends who, I was in medicine, so I was going to get a job. I mean, that wasn't, that wasn't an issue. But my friends who were reading history or English, or, they never had any doubt that no. at, the end, at the end of it all there'd be employment. And there was, whereas now there's this anxiety about two twos, two yep. ones, and, you know, will I get a job? What do I need to do? It just seems a, a different and tenser world in that way. Yeah, and, and it is. And you can see that partly in the, the concern for mental health amongst students, which has grown, you know, from nothing really when I was a student to a, a really serious issue now. Right, right. Well, John, when it comes to rankings and university guides, you are, of course, a legend in the field. And, uh, and it, it, it's, I, 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 I did a, a little search on Google uh, to, you know, history of rank university rankings. And I got this wonderful sociological paper, which you which you would adore, right? Uh, that that went into it, and um, it was something about here in the abstract. It says that the the understanding of organisational performance in the post-war decades was part of precipitating rankings, and this constituted, wait for it, a discursive shift, which was made possible, most notably, but not solely by the rise of functionalism to the status of a dominant intellectual paradigm. <laughs> oh, I'm not sure about that. <laughs> <laughs> I just thought you'd look. But if you read the article, it actually starts talking about the American Council on Education, yeah. looking at rankings back in the 1920s, actually, John. Didn't I? No, I didn't. Um, and I mean, not in a... So really, for you, did you feel that they became relevant historically when in the 80s and 90s who was who was first it was McLean's wasn't it in Canada or have I got that wrong no I, I think it was Americans right. I'm not sure when McLean's started I mean the, the spark for them in the UK was the 1992 promotion of polytechnics to become universities right when suddenly instead of 
50 odd universities, there were nearer 100. Um, you know, 34, I think it was, polytechnics became universities. Several of them changed their names completely and um, it became one system, at which point we thought that uh, people were going to be choosing one between one system and that there ought to be a way of, uh, of doing that. Because at the time there were there were a lot of statistics published by universities, but uh, there was not much encouragement to compare them, let alone to combine them right. um, in a way that helped your choice as a student. And it was at a time too when student numbers were coming up a lot and when people were going to university with not a lot of um, guidance, either from family or in some cases, or many cases, from schools either. And, and I mean, I've always said that there are a number of motivations for, for uh, people publishing rankings, one of which is you'd rather like people to buy your newspaper, if you don't mind. Uh, and, but the, did you also feel a, a real sense of providing information, that that was a duty that you were fulfilling, as well as the commercial imperative? Uh, yes, we did. I mean, there's, there's no getting away from the fact that they had to be popular with readers. Um, it, they were very unpopular with universities who accused us of making up a lot of the, uh, the statistics that went into them and uh, combining them in a sort of vulgar way. And there were a lot of vice chancellors who were um, lobbying the editor of the Times, not to mention people more senior than that. Um, not to publish. Tell them that uh, we were going to damage the reputation of the paper and all sorts of things. But the, uh, the circulation went up by several thousand when when they appeared, and that uh, that seemed to weigh more heavily with the, uh, the, yes. the times. I mean, I can see the issue that you could see in an academic sense. You know, how do you reduce to in inverted commas a single figure? Yeah. Um, uh, it's something as complex uh, and, and multifactorial as a university. And you, you, could, you, you could see, I presume the people at the top of the rankings didn't complain so much, but the people <laughs> further down did. Well, the, the, the people at the very top, i.e. Oxford and Cambridge, sort of studiously ignored them because they, <laughs> there was only one way to go for them, wasn't there? Not to be top was going to be a failure. So uh, they, they didn't want much to do with them. Some of the others, I mean, I, I think they did a, a lot of good, not that they were necessarily welcomed by them, but for what were previously called the new universities, those created in the 60s, uh, the likes of Warwick and York and Bath, which all appeared in the top 10 of our first ranking in 1992-3, um, above the likes of, you know, Manchester and Glasgow and places that um, Durham that would normally have been put at the top in what was at the time a very anecdotal sort of word of mouth set of guidance not guided by anything very firm. Right. I mean, I, I don't know if you remember this. I certainly remember the evening, but you and me were at a meeting of the OECD in Paris. <laughs> I do. A long, long, a long, long time ago, John. And the lady from McLean's stood up to discuss what, what, how they'd done their rankings. And I remember she famously said that a ranking has to reflect what the reader would think the ranking would be. 
Right. Uh, otherwise, it uh, uh, otherwise it had no credibility. So, in other words, if Oxford and Cambridge weren't at the top, right, then the reader would say, "Well, I'm terribly sorry, but uh, yes. you, you know, I, I don't." Uh, yeah. I mean, do you feel that's a valid observation of hers? I, I, definitely, I do. Yes, and um, and you know, anybody who produces a ranking will will go through the motions of seeing what the results look like before it's published. Uh, on the other hand, once you've established a methodology, uh, you are stuck with it and it can't reflect what people think all the way through. Um, I mean, Manchester, for instance, didn't do terribly well in, in our rankings for a number of years. Um, and there wasn't much that, that we could do about it at that stage if we weren't going to sort of change the methodology altogether, in which case somebody else wouldn't do very well. It's, it's, um, it's what it is once you get it going. I can imagine one or two Manchester vice chancellors that may have had a monosyllabic conversation with you, John. <laughs> uh, I have been summoned by at least one. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's a number of variables, and you can see that different rankings use them in different ways. I mean, what, what do you think are the most powerful? Um, and also, there's a national sense of ranking and then an international, isn't there? Yes, there is. And for some universities, the, the international ones are, are more important than the, the national ones. Um, and for many... And for most, I would say it's still the national ones that, that count most. Mm. But if you're Oxford and Cambridge, for instance, um, and a, a number of the others, maybe Bristol, I don't know, that they see their competitors as being, you know, Harvard and Yale and uh, um, Sydney or wherever, but um, they don't have much to, to gain from the national rankings because people see them up there, whereas internationally, it's important to them to be in a, a reasonably respectable position. I mean, not the top necessarily, but uh, I remember when we started the international rankings, which were much more difficult to do, by the way, than national ones, because you don't have comparable Yes, I was going to ask to you about by. that. Um, we, we did it in... The year that Manchester said that it wanted to be in the, in the top fifty in the world, even though it wasn't a top fifty to be in, <laughs> so right. so we provided one. But, uh, <laughs> it, but a lot of universities at that time were saying, you know, we're in the top, whatever. Whereas you you were on sort of shakier ground on the the national stage. Yes, I, I mean, I suppose the the thing is always. Um that I found quite challenging about the international is, is it's very difficult to get student experience comparison Completely. internationally. So, yeah. you know, one of the key things that a university does, you know, I mean, I think, I think people tend to forget that the most important output of a university are the people who graduate by a long yeah. way. Uh, they go off and make, and, and it's almost impossible to get transnational uh, comparisons of that, it, isn't it? it? It is impossible because then, I mean, even if you could do it, I don't know whether you could you could really claim that students have the same expectations of the university experience in, you know, Moscow as, as they do in London as sure. they do in Sydney. Right. Um, but even if you could get that, there are there are no figures to do it. So 
the, the reputational end comes from academics uh, and they're, they're polled in quite large numbers and so are employers about what they think of the graduates that they take on. But in the UK rankings, the, uh, the National Student Survey, sure. which is final year graduates, um, yes. undergraduates giving their verdict, is the, the most heavily weighted factor in all of them. And I remember Michael Arthur, who was in charge of the National Student Survey for a while, saying, you know, whatever else you might say about it, N, the number of people completing it, yeah. is very, very large indeed. And it therefore, is. you know, you, you really should pay attention to, to what it is, whatever statistical weaknesses there might be or, you know, uh, questionnaire weaknesses. When, once you're looking at I mean, 300,000, 400,000 yeah. people, you know, it matters. And it also it, it makes it almost impossible for universities to manipulate. Right. Because, you know, A, word is going to get out if you try to, and, uh, and B, the, the numbers are just too large. And the only one that has succeeded at all is uh, Oxford, which is um, its students have boycotted it to the point where its figures aren't published. So right. you have to have a 50% response rate for your figures to be yes. published, and theirs yes. hasn't for a number yes. of years now. Now, the, because the other, I mean, I'm going to talk to you about the university's view of ranking, but, you know, the, 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 the other thing that, before I get onto that, you know, people say, well, of course, what you do is you change the variables so that there's, you know, you change the power of the variable. I mean, the, the tables have to move. That, that is, you know, in a sense, if you just had the same table year after year after year, you know, it wouldn't. So the tables have, and of course, OU conspiratorial ranking, uh, you change the variables to make things move. Uh, you know, I just how, wonder how you see that criticism. Because variables do change the power. People do change the power of variables. In terms. Uh, yes, um, we've tried not to change them much in the, in the Times ranking. Right. And we've dropped one of the measures in the last year, which is the spending one, which is um, arguably more open to manipulation because you can choose as a university where some parts of your spending appear in your accounts. And that makes a difference to whether it counts in, in that, that measure or not. Um, so that one's gone. So that variable has changed. Uh, but but generally we've tried to keep them pretty stable and they move more than enough without doing uh, yeah, anything untoward it? to the uh, the things that we're measuring. You know the argument being that you know that these are huge institutions and and it really there shouldn't be much movement year on year um, and, and you know because because they have decades their ideas are you know their future to decades yeah. and they. Um, and also, I presume just changing one variable's power doesn't really make a great deal of difference to a position of a university, does it? It doesn't. No. Well, and taking it out altogether will make a difference to some. I mean, there, there have yes. been some universities that have always had very high spending, um, some suspiciously so. Um, <laughs> and if they lose that indicator altogether, it does them a bit of damage. I mean, it doesn't move them 50 places down the table, but it might move them sort of 10 or 12. Whereas just the, the thing that people always 
site is the proportion of firsts and two ones. Um, if, if you award a few more firsts or two ones, um, A may not make a lot of difference because so is everybody else doing. Um, <laughs> but also it might move you a, a, a place or two up against your, your rivals, which might be very welcome, but it isn't going to affect the table much. I mean, if we, I mean, I think the um, one of the interesting things is the behaviour of not. I want to talk to you about the behaviour, how students use the rankings, yeah. but the behaviour of, of universities about rankings. So first of all, the is we do not pay any attention to these things. They are evil and uh, they should not be allowed. And of course, if they go up in the rankings, their PR department has, <laughs> you know, all over the place, soaring, soaring, the verb soaring comes. And of course, the, if they drop in the rankings, of course, the university doesn't mention it, but the journalists describe them as plummeting in the right. rankings. I mean, it, you know, you can't have it both ways. I remember being at the Russell Group, where a very famous university was saying that we should just pay no attention to these rankings whatsoever. Somebody went online and got the first page of their annual report <laughs> up, right? Which the first paragraph was about their position in all the ranking. Yeah, yeah. And um, and naturally they will pick the ranking in which they do best. So, you know, if they're going a lot up a lot in the international rankings, they'll pick that one. And if they're doing better in the Guardian one than they are in the Times one, they'll they'll pick that. Pick that one. But in in my experience, the, the the people who take most notes them are governing bodies yes which makes it more difficult for a, a vice chancellor to ignore them altogether because governing bodies it's something for them to to hang on to and to, to sort of show whether you're going up or down in concrete terms whether accurate or not um students i, I don't know that they take them as literally as people think they do i think their parents often do um, and I, I think actually parents are the ones that that take them, that look at them most closely. I, I'm right. I haven't found that students do generally. I mean, I I don't know how your um, daughter found it, but my daughter, when she was at her local school here, I mean, there was an almost a kind of Jungian feeling amongst her peer group of the universities that they would apply to. You know, in her yeah. peer group, they were all applying to, uh, you know, mostly in the south of England, of course, for me. Um, and I don't think she paid any attention to the rankings at all, John. I'll mm. be perfectly honest with you. No, and um, some schools, some independent schools particularly, will will take them quite seriously and will, uh, you know, I'm, I know a school that, that buys a copy of the Sunday Times magazine when it comes out and distributes it to every member of the sixth form. Uh, but what they do with it, and what the sixth formers do with it is, an, is another, another matter. And the, the sort of disappointment of them for me is that we always thought that um, those people who were at, at schools that didn't have much experience of going, sending people to university would find them most useful and would use them um, more perhaps than the ones who had good advice available already. Right. And that doesn't seem to be the case. It seems to be the, the ones who have the most advice already uh, are likely more. also to look at the yes. tables more than the others. Yes, I, I mean, it, it's not really for here, but I find the variables 
influencing students' choice of uh, where they go to university. I mean, my daughter was going to London, full stop, Dad. That's it. Yeah, whereas I'm mine were not going to London. I've been stuck in rural Hampshire for the last 18 years. <laughs> London it is for me. Um, and you're quite right about the, the people that would beat me around the head about uni the University of Bristol in the rankings was a often the lay the lay members of the governing body took it very very seriously indeed yeah. and alumni alumni yes. were very very sensitive yeah. to to rankings and um, it uh, uh, you know particularly you know so for example if you're on a big fundraising campaign and and you drop in the rankings that that's not clever. Yeah, no, I could believe that. I, I mean, in, in in my more you know <laughs> uh, realistic verse, the one I that the the one thing that I've always thought that rank the rankings did was it was in a sense set an entirely inappropriate narrative inside universities. So, you know, I can imagine the vice chancellor interview at which the candidate says, "Well, I want to increase uh, our places in the rankings." To which the answer is what you're using as a managerial tool, something over which you have no control <laughs> whatsoever, that is likely to change and that will be different from, surely that's just bad management John, <laughs> rather than anything else. I mean, certainly a number of universities have, have taken on people whose primary task is to improve their status in the, the National Student Survey. But I mean, you could argue that that is doing that's something for students. Yes. And, uh, you know, and I do think that the, the NSS has, has done a lot for students in, in many ways. If, if a, a student's union sort of picks on something like library opening hours, it tends to happen. Yes, it's, yeah. So, uh, no, I think that's rather different than I'll, I, you know, I, I always, you know, this is a, in inverted commas, this is a race, John, right? You know, so the idea is well, I'll go into the top 50. I'll get us into the top 50. And you know, what do you think the other 49 are doing? <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> you know, they're not just lying idly by, not investing in the student experience or, or you know, not aware of their research output or anything. You know, yeah. you can't push, you know, I always used to joke that you know I that Bristol was one of the two hundred and fifty universities in the world's top one hundred. Yeah, <laughs> and actually the the thing we haven't mentioned so far as the, the rankings by subject, which um, I think perhaps are more influential with students. You know, if you've decided that you definitely want to do law or something, then um, you know having a look at what last year's law students thought about different universities is, is not a bad idea and and I think that I'm, I haven't got a lot of evidence for this but my feeling is that students take more notice of the subject rankings than they do of the overall ones whereas employers um, largely look at the, um, the the whole university rankings because that's what they know about and they, they can't sort of put all the rest together Right, right. Well, John, we've kind of come towards the end of our 30 to 35 minutes time. And I suppose uh, the, uh, the uh, having had such an influence in this area, both as a journalist and then with the Times higher and 
Would you say overall rankings are a good thing or, um, you know, a, not a bad thing? I don't intrinsically want to think that they're a bad thing, but they that can cause dis, disconcerting behavioural changes yeah, inside yeah. university. No, I mean, no, I'm, I wouldn't deny that they, they do that. I, mean, I think um, I would still claim overall they've been a, a good thing and that they have been something that gives students a bit more guidance and then not necessarily choosing the whole ranking if they want to choose uh, a, a single part of it if what they're most interested in is uh, research for instance they can look at that bit not the rest of it mm. Mm. Um, and then as I say the subject ones particularly but I, I wouldn't deny that they they do influence behavior in universities in a, a way that uh, we didn't intend when we set out to create them in the first place. Yeah, and I, and I think what they what what they ask of the sector is that the sector starts to take a mature view of, of what a particular university is for, and you know that if if, if research is a powerful um, uh, variable in in rankings, which it invariably is, then of course those universities that maybe have a local major educational mission. You know, I'm thinking of some of the in my own northeast of England, where, uh, where, where, you know, they're they're after giving advantage, giving giving opportunity to people yeah. who do otherwise yeah. bad opportunity. And what we should do, and of course, that means they don't they're not in the top half of the rankings, but that doesn't mean that they're not valuable universities. No, no, and and some of them do do very well now in in the rankings. You know, some some of the former polytechnics are now sort of knocking on the door of the, the top 20 um, and largely because they they are satisfying their students and they're getting good grades in the national student survey right. but they also have an, an eye on the international rankings because international students have become such an important part of these um, the economy as well as the sociology of, of universities of all types right well, listen, John, that was a fascinating conversation. Thank you so much for uh, uh, for doing this for our opening podcast. And uh, it'll be interesting to see what feedback we get about it. There will be the rankings haters and there'll be the rankings supporters, but we, we shall wait and see. And uh, I suppose it's perfectly reasonable for me to wish you a very good Christmas and New Year. And that maybe I'll, see, I don't know whether I'll see you on Boxing Day at the West Ham game or not. Um, sadly, you won't, because I should be at a pantomime with my, my grandchildren. <laughs> not not well, that Okay, okay <laughs> then the Newcastle game, John. Yes. Positive. <laughs> All right, thanks very much. Cheers now. Okay, thanks. Bye. Bye. Visit studiosity.com slash students first for the next Students First Symposium an open forum for faculty, staff and academics to candidly discuss and progress the issues that matter most in higher education.